does it mean to be UMC? Each episode of this podcast series explores that question with clergy and laity at the East Ohio Conference sharing stories of how lives are being transformed through the ministries of the United Methodist Church. This is Storyboard. Faith, Witness, Transformation. Welcome to Storyboard, Faith, Witness, Transformation. And today in our studio, we have three different voices that are representing a few different areas of our globe. We have a couple of different missionaries who have joined us around the table uh, to join myself and Reverend Kathy DeCreedy to join us in a conversation about missions in the United Methodist Church. And so, Kathy, uh, how are you doing today? I'm great. And you, Brett? I'm doing pretty well. So, Kathy, why don't you share your title here in the East Ohio Conference? Sure. I work with the Connectional Ministry Office as the Director of Missions and Community Engagement. I'm also the UMVIM Coordinator, the United Methodist Volunteer in Mission that helps to train and equip team leaders and folks for healthy relationships and partnerships with um, our mission partners and missionaries around the globe, locally and um, here in the United States. And are there any other hats you would like to share about? I help to chair the order of the deacon as I'm an ordained deacon here in the East Ohio Conference and um, do whatever else is asked of me from the Connectional Ministry (laughs) Office. All right. So Kathy is very busy, uh, but today we're going to focus on the missions part. And sitting across the table from us, we have two visiting missionaries. And we'll start with you, Patrick. Uh, Welcome to our podcast. And why don't you introduce yourself to our audience and Tell us a little bit about what brings you here today. Uh, Thank you, Brett. Good morning. Uh, My name is Patrick Booth, and I am a Global Ministries missionary. And I serve in the Kingdom of Cambodia, where we run a program called Project ARC, that is Advancing Resilient Khmer. We do uh, job training and reintegration for human trafficking survivors. Excellent. That's very powerful stuff. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And sitting next to Patrick is Anne. So, Anne, welcome to our podcast and thank you for joining us. Anne, why don't you tell us about yourself and what brings you to our table? Hi, Brett. Thank you so much for the invitation to join you today to talk. My name is Anne Hidalgo, uh, and I have just finished a term serving in Costa Rica at the Universidad Biblica Latinoamericana the Latin American Biblical University, where I was teaching theology. Excellent. So we have a nice little representation of some missions around the table here. So why don't we dive into some exploration of what led you to discover your call in the mission field? Patrick wants to play some rock, paper, scissors to see who answered the question first. Uh, <laughs> but really, what, what, uh, how did you discover your call? Well, I don't mind going first. Uh, I did everything backwards, as tends to be the way I I do things. I actually had a connection first with uh, my placement service, site of service in Costa Rica, the Universidad Biblica. When I was a graduate student studying at Claremont School of Theology, that's in the Los Angeles area, I was doing my PhD work there. And during that time, I wanted to spend a semester in Latin America. And I had asked around 
uh, several of the professors and everyone kept mentioning the same place, the UBL, the UBL. <laughs> that's that's the place to go. Oh, it's wonderful there. So I did in 2013, got to go there for four months and was just amazed. It was just such a wonderful community, so vibrant with people from all over Latin America, all over the Caribbean, just a really, really interesting spot and amazing conversations. And I absolutely fell in love with the place. At that point, I didn't want to go back and finish up school, uh, <laughs> but my husband talked me out of it and we went back and we finished our degrees, which I think in retrospect was a good idea. But that had always been in the back of my mind of wanting to go back. And I thought, I don't, I don't know how I would make that work. I am not part of a denomination that sends people directly in service to to the UBL. And, you know, my background is as a Catholic and I wasn't going to be sent there. And I thought that's where I would really love to go. And I, it was something that floated around in the back of my mind for a number of years. And then in 2020, I'd had a conversation with a colleague and she asked me, what would be your dream job? And just in a heartbeat, I said, teaching at the UBL. And she said, well, you never know, it might happen. And yeah, yeah, sure, it might happen. <laughs> and not two weeks later, she forwarded me an email from one of the professors at the UBL that they had a place open. They were looking for someone who was a specialist in feminist theology, someone who could speak Spanish and someone who was willing to move to Costa Rica. I said, that's me. That's my dream job. That's what I want to do. I was so, so thrilled. So I wrote wow. back and it was actually someone I had met in 2013 and, and was able to reintroduce myself and sent my CV. And they said, great, we would love to have you come. Contact United Methodist Global Ministries. And they are the ones who sponsor this position. And so that's that's how I ended up in service with Global Ministries. That's a fantastic call story. And so during COVID, you answered that call to go to Costa Rica. Yes. And for that reason, we had a shorter time there. The first few months, we weren't able to get into the country because the borders were closed. So we were just waiting, 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 waiting. And in December of 2020, uh, the borders reopened and we were able to travel. So we were actually in country two and a half years. Okay. What about you, Patrick? How did you discover your call? So I uh, I grew up in the United Methodist Church and really I discovered a I was really led to a strong desire to help other people through the experience with the church. My parents separated when I was 10 years old and the local church really stepped in and helped us keep our head above water for about three or four years. And so I always wanted to give that back. And that led me to to pursue an education and career in counseling that was focused on helping other people, but really missions always held the closest place to my heart. Mm -hmm. So uh, I gave up the counseling career in 2014 and went out into the mission field full time doing volunteer mission work uh, at first with a program called Adventures in Missions, where they do the world race, which is 11 countries in 11 months. And I did that through 2015. Um, and continued to do volunteer missions for about five years before I just, I came back to the church that raised me and the church that put the desire to help others in my heart. And when Global Ministries opened up the opportunity for me to go and serve in Cambodia, I said, yes. Excellent. And yeah, my first mission trip in high school was through Adventures in Mission. 
<laughs> They're a great program. They are, yes. Mm -hmm. So you have two very distinct mission experiences. Uh, we have some teaching and we have out in field work with individuals who have uh, experienced human trafficking. What would an average day look like for you? What type of things were you responsible for? Well, for me, during the time that I was teaching at the UBL, we were operating online. Because of the pandemic, we had to send the students home off of the campus. And interestingly, right in that moment, we discovered that there was another population of potential students who had always wanted to study but weren't able to travel to Costa Rica in order to make that happen. So we actually got an increase in enrollment at the beginning of the pandemic as new students found that the courses were accessible because they were online. So I was teaching uh, in front of a Zoom screen <laughs> during the during the whole time that I was there. And so uh, an average day would mean teaching courses, having class sessions on Zoom, spending time on the learning management platform. We used Moodle as our platform. So the students were uh, signing on each day to converse in a discussion forum and turn in their homework assignments, written assignments there, as well as other kinds of projects. And other than that, uh, faculty meetings with my colleagues and working with students who were writing their theses and uh, final projects for their degree programs. And so that was one-on-one -on -one time with individual students, helping them through the research process and find the resources they needed and put together their arguments in a way that was coherent and clear. So mostly time online with other people. What about you, Patrick? So I also um, started my mission during the pandemic, mm. and that certainly adjusted mm. the way that we did the work. During the pandemic, we, we had volunteers that were helping to do devotions with our participants. And so because of being able to do those or having to do those on Zoom, we would do those before we went to a work site, which meant that we would wake up around maybe 4.30 and would start a drive at 5 to get to the dorm at 5.30 set up the Zoom and then do a Zoom from 5.30 to 6.30. And then from 6.30 to 7, they would start making their way to the work site and they would start their work. Um, when they were on their way to the work site, I would head back towards the apartment where I would do online language classes for three hours. And then in the afternoon, I would go to the work site and check on the work and then maybe do some administrative work in the office and then go back to the work site and check on the work start that process over the next day. I'm grateful that now things have settled down a little bit more. Some of the volunteers that we had are now able to be in the country. And now we do our devotions at the work site, which really ends up being a great outreach because it's not just shared with our participants, but also shared with other laborers on the work site who have never heard the gospel because mm -hmm. the country is 97% Buddhist. Mm -hmm. And so it's just, a, it's just a great opportunity to really kind of share the good news uh, with a people that hasn't been introduced to it in the past. And you mentioned three hours of language courses. So you weren't very fluent in the language starting out, were you? No. So uh, I was able to do a little bit of training beforehand, but the, the language has been an uphill battle and it mm -hmm. continues to be. Uh, it's a language that has 33 consonants and 26 vowels and two different sounds with each vowel, depending on which consonant it's paired with. And mm -hmm. it's 
Sanskrit based. So they have a few letters that are just sounds that I had to practice in order to be able to say. I, you know, after a year of doing three hours and five days a week, I can properly order myself a cup of coffee and I'm working on it from there. Wow. Yeah. Are, are you able to, to converse fairly well at this point? Bad, bad. Can you tell me about the people who are in Cambodia? So like, yeah, I, I study every day mm-hmm. because I live in the country and certainly in order to, especially to speak to my participants in my program, most of them don't have a basic primary education, so they have difficulty mm. with their own language, much less English. I would not expect them to be able to pick up a second language in order for us to communicate with them. Mm-hmm. And so in order to engage with them, I just, I have to, and, and I'm grateful for that opportunity. All right. So that kind of dovetails into the question of what are some of the challenges, some of the difficulties that you would run into? You know, you mentioned the language barrier. Um, and, and you already spoke Spanish moving into that that field. But what are some of those other challenges that you might run into in your field? Well, for us, the pandemic itself created the situation that, on the one hand, opened up the door to new students, but on the other hand, made things very difficult for some of our students who live in remote areas. Mm-hmm. When they were on campus, they had access to everything they need. They had the university library there. They had their colleagues, and everything was right at their fingertips. But when students had to go home, in some cases, they were going to rural areas in Peru. Um, Students in Honduras find themselves in areas where they don't have good internet access or strong enough access to be able to get on a Zoom meeting easily and not have the call dropping all the time. I had one student in my first semester teaching who lived in Peru in a rather remote area, and she simply could not sign on to a Zoom meeting. So she would call on WhatsApp one of her other classmates, and through WhatsApp, they would hold up the the, stu- the other student would hold uh, their phone up to the computer screen so she could hear the Zoom conversation going Mm. and, you know, be able to participate that way. And I've had students in Honduras who have the power out and then they're calling in using their cell phone minutes, um, which no doubt is expensive for them and, and presents a real challenge. On the other hand, that shows us how invested these students are, that they're not willing to let a bump in the road prevent them from continuing their education. They're, they're just so excited about learning and what they're getting out of the experience and what they can then share with their communities, whether it's their church communities, some work in nonprofits, some are professionals in other fields in education and psychology who are just going back uh, as a second career to study theology or biblical studies and then continue to share that through through their own work. So the challenges and the benefits are all intermingled and a little bit of both came out of the reality that we found ourselves in during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Anything beyond the language barrier that has really come up as a challenge for you, Patrick? Uh, sure. Of course, the the pandemic changes the way that you, you do things. It, it certainly changed the way that we did things. Our program had to it was required to adjust and really kind of refocus itself. During the pandemic, we actually became the construction crew, the original concept Mm -hmm. for the program. This is a pilot program and we're still figuring things out as we go. 
But the original concept for the program was going to be buying plots of land and building on it and then selling those and and eventually building it to where it's a self-sustaining program. But with uh, an an economic crash that happened in Cambodia during the pandemic, that just wasn't a feasible option. And so we kind of shifted our focus to where now we have a construction crew and we bid those projects out. And so our participants are still able to receive the same training that we envisioned for them. It's just in a different way. And so that's just one adjustment that we've had to make. We continue to struggle with obstacles that just any construction crew would, to be honest, is that mm-hmm. uh, workers don't always uh, retaining a crew from one job to the next is a difficult task for any crew, but it's uh, that much more difficult sometimes for us as a nonprofit in order to be able to do that. And as well, what we're working towards is the self-sustaining program so that eventually the revenue that comes from the construction jobs will pay for the outreach that we do. We're not there yet, but we're certainly building towards that. And another thing that we have to deal with is that when we hire skilled workers that are going to train our participants, we've had to recognize that we can't just hire skilled workers. We have to hire skilled workers that are also able to teach. Mm -hmm. And there's a significant difference in those skill sets. And we've had to let many workers go because they weren't treating our participants the way that we wanted them to treat our participants. They Mm -hmm. weren't treating them with respect and they weren't encouraging them. And so, you know, we said, that's not what we hired you on for. But as we made the adjustment that I mentioned earlier, where we're doing devotions on the work site, we've seen that we've really built a, a whole different community within the crew that's beyond just the participants that we're working with. It's also to the skilled workers that we hire and and we're really, we, we like to think that we're doing some kingdom building mm-hmm. there in Cambodia. Awesome. And so, you know, we don't want to focus just on challenges. What are some of the success stories that you, that you want to share? What are some of the good things that you've been able to see the kingdom work that you mentioned, Patrick, that you've been able to see grow? So for us, uh, one of the most most important things for us, the reason why we call our program Advancing Resilient Kamai, is because we want to make sure that everybody that exits our program has resiliency to being trafficked in the future. One of the most egregious statistics that we looked at before the program was put together was that nine out of 10 trafficking victims will go back into trafficking after they're rescued. And the reason why is because a lot of outreach programs really are just trying to get them back to the same place where they were before. But we believe that when you put them back in the exact same place, they end up in the exact same place. And so that's why when people come into our program, we're asking them for a commitment of six months to a year to a year and a half in order to really help them build those skills, not just the job skills, but also the life skills that help them attain an independent lifestyle. And we've seen success with that. Uh, you know, there's one that comes to mind that um, he he is the eldest child and both of his parents um, unfortunately passed away and he had to provide for his siblings. So he was very, very committed and he was with us for about 10 or 11 months. And um, to be honest, it was an uphill battle for him. It was a difficult trek. He wasn't very physically strong. So the construction work was difficult and he wasn't really particularly bright. So the learning was slow, but he was committed. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. We trained him to do air conditioning repair and air conditioning installation. That's one of the skills that we teach. And he would, when he came back to the dorm, watch YouTube videos to give himself more understanding. And after about 11 months, he actually went to work with one of the skilled workers that was working on one of our different jobs and they started bidding out their own contracts. Mm. And so he, you know, achieved the goal that we're working towards for every one of the participants. And, and he's an example that we point to that all of the rest of you can do it too. Awesome. What about you, Ian? What kind of success stories did you get to see? Well, the students. The students, the students. Actually, I can take a step back and say that the university itself this year, 2023, is celebrating its centennial. So that has been an mm -hmm. amazing opportunity to have some celebrations. We did a liturgy earlier in the year, and we had an academic conference in April that was fantastic with participants from all over the place. So the school itself is is thriving uh, at a time when seminaries that have ecumenical reaches are not necessarily doing so well. And particularly in Latin America, I can't think of another uh, seminary like it that has that longevity and importance in the region in terms of the work that it does. But it all comes down to how the students are doing. And the process of watching students in the class, I think any teacher knows that there's, there's that moment that aha moment that something finally becomes clear to someone who's been struggling, struggling, struggling with an idea. And for me, that's always, always so rewarding. Some of the things that are particularly important at the UBL are the role of women in the churches in Latin America, depending on the country, the situation of women in public life in general varies. A country like Costa Rica has good legislation in place trying to provide for equality of opportunity in terms of education and employment and things like that. Not all of the Latin American countries are at that same spot. Honduras recently has had a lot of difficulty with violence against women and the inability to effectively prosecute situations of violence. So all of those things are part of the context in which we're educating and Understanding that there is a biblical and a theological reason to take a stand on issues like this is a big challenge for some students, depending on what kinds of churches they're coming from. In some cases, they say, oh, well, that's not relevant. That's that's not about church. That's not that's not what we do when we're here on Sundays or something like that. And trying to change their mind on that point <laughs> is is one of the the, the main tasks that the UBL has taken on. And so watching students make that transition in their thinking and realizing that there is a moral and theological center toward taking a position on issues of gender equality is, is one very important thing. Uh, another aspect that is also very important to the university is the ecology. Again, Costa Rica in civic terms, does quite well. That is one of the things that they're known for. They have very ambitious uh, goals environmentally, but other countries are not doing as well. And I would say the majority of students come in without having any real sense of a connection between their Christian beliefs and a need to care for the environment. So that's something else that we are, are hoping that students will 
will learn during the time they're at UBL. So I mentioned the student earlier who used WhatsApp to call her friend to participate. <laughs> she just a few months ago wrote her thesis and defended a project on the use of water in Peru in the rural areas where she lives. And the idea that although in terms of the ancient indigenous traditions, the water had a, a great role of for which people had a lot of respect, that has been lost and people tend to just look at it as, oh, well, it's a commodity. There's lots of water in this area and you know we can use it for whatever we want and we can dump things in the river and it doesn't matter because there's always warmer water coming. And her project was a project to convince people in the churches to think differently about water. And she brought her theological resources to bear on this into the conversation and really wove it into an really amazing conversation with what is going on in that community, what kind of heritage they have ancestrally of respect for the water, and weaving that with uh, Christian theology, respecting creation. And she's so excited about it. It was so wonderful to watch her defend her dissertation. And this was a student who was academically challenged when she started, had a really rough time getting a handle on academic writing. She wrote a wonderful project and defended it with such confidence mm -hmm. and has gone back to Peru to work. And she's now pastoring there and I'm sure doing amazing work. So these are the success stories that that excite me and keep me going and, and keep the university going. Fantastic. Well, as we move towards the end of our conversation, uh, I want to ask you, what kind of encouragement do you have? Because I'm sure anyone listening, there's there's bound to be some people who may be feeling a call towards missions as, as a vocation, as a ministry. What kind of encouragement might you have for someone who's exploring that call? You can do it. <laughs> I, I, I say that uh, with with confidence and, and really with uh, an appreciation that God prepares us before he ever calls us into a, one of these positions. We all feel like we are unprepared and many of us are, are lacking some of the things that we need when we get there. But God really uh, puts things together and he calls us for a specific a specific time with a specific place. And uh, I, I had a conversation just coming through recently with a woman at a rental car agency who said that she, I mean, she was telling me that she had gone to school to be a missionary and then didn't. And then, but she had three, four, five different books on her desk that were all like these different uh, Christian theology and Christian philosophy books. And I'm absolutely going to share with her the application and I'm going to send that to her directly and request for her to, <laughs> to uh, take that step because she was just so excited about it. I, I just want to let everybody know that God has prepared you. And if you have a calling, then he will make sure that you're ready for it. That's funny, Patrick. Whenever I would go to the bank to get ready to go on a mission trip and you know request X O Y Z amount of money for the team that we were taking and things, I would let the banker know that she was a part of ministry in Liberia or a water well or he whoever was there that this was a role that they were playing in the mission field, and you just never know what invitation 
that might come from that as who you're talking to in those ways. That's mm-hmm. a cool story. What about you, Anne? What kind of encouragement would you share? Well, I would never in a million years have thought that I would ever work as a missionary. Mm-hmm. So things happen. For the United Methodist Church, the, no yeah, doubt, as a Catholic background. Church. Yeah. yeah. And your husband's not even a Catholic or Methodist he pastor. He's not either. No. Yeah. No. So I, I'm I'm the last person who would ever think that they would end up in this position. And it has been wonderful. I am so grateful. Global Ministries has been fantastic to work with. We've been so well supported. And I've had a really, really excellent experience and would wholeheartedly encourage anyone who's interested. And I'm intrigued around, you know, Patrick, as you talk about your experience started as, you know, being on a part of a mission team and of course, spending a whole year traveling kind of the amazing race of missions experience that you had. And I think that that's what happens. You know, we, we participate in a United Methodist volunteer and mission trip, whether it's repairing homes here in the United States or a disaster relief site or international missions like Brett has traveled to Liberia with me. Um, and then we say, oh, I could do this a little bit longer. And we have our mission volunteer opportunity. And then after you do where we volunteer f- for up to, um, six to two years as a volunteer, having support from our churches to applying for a position as a missionary with global ministries or another denomination and finding ourselves um, deep into people's lives and people's lives deep into our lives. And so it's exciting to think about the variety of ways that God calls us into those mission fields. Yeah. And so, Kathy, if uh, anyone's listening who might be trying to feel out that call, how might they best go about getting more information? Talking to me or going straight to the Global Ministries website and seeing the variety of places that the United Methodist Church has people on all of our continents Mm -hmm. serving in ministry and mission um, in a variety of vocations and roles and places. And they can get in touch with you directly at the EOCUMC.com uh, website yep. underneath the Missions and Community Engagement tab. It's true. Yes. We make it very easy for you to get a hold of Kathy. Mm-hmm. Yes. You can email her directly from there and we will, we always include that in the show notes. So Anne, Patrick, Kathy, I want to thank you all for joining me around the table here this week, this episode, and thank you for answering the call to serve. It's fantastic being able to hear your stories, your hearts. And for those of you who are listening, I pray that this conversation has been a blessing to you. And if it's sparked a passion in you or even some questions, uh, please reach out to Kathy and she can definitely get you pointed in the right direction. You can learn more about the East Ohio Conference by visiting our website at www.eocumc.com or by finding us online at Facebook at facebook.com slash EOCUMC, on Instagram at EOCUMC, or on Twitter at East Ohio UM.